church you sound amazing coming out of that um, over the past couple of weeks uh, it sounds much much better with everyone singing along I it's that is one of my absolute favorite songs um, a lot of times I'll be in my office here and YouTube sovereign grace all that other from sovereign grace bold your God and we'll play it on a loop um, I, I never get tired of that song. Um, and honestly, I will probably ask Beth to play that again next week as well. <laughs> so I, I, I hope that I hope that you will uh, enjoy them as well. Um, <clears throat> so uh, this week, I, uh, I kind of felt a- after last week's uh, sermon, being in the Sermon on the Mount, and, and really just this topic of dealing with anger and the letter of the law uh, spoke to Moses and Christ really went to the heart of the issue that it's really it's with us it's with anger and it's and the lengths we should go to to be reconciled to one another. I I, I chose that sermon and I think I, I shared with you all because of uh, it was one of those that really just stuck with me and I could easily prepare. But in that I hated going to this sermon without first because we're taking a piece of the greatest sermon ever preached from the greatest preacher ever. And that's Christ, and just taking a section out of the middle. And, and I hated to do that without first looking at the opening of the sermon. And, and we did a little bit, but today I want us to back up. And, and today we're going to be in Matthew 5, 1 through 5, looking at the Beatitudes. And as we look at these Beatitudes, we're, we're really going to look at the first four. And, 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 and this is going to be a progression over three weeks. I'll, I'll be preaching next week as well. Backwards from how I would have uh, chosen to do this, but I, I think it, in the light of it, as we think of of what was asked out of Christ last week, and it is impossible when we consider it. It is seemingly it is impossible, but we're going to be working backwards. And, and when, when Christ talked about this, the lengths we should go to to be reconciled, he, he's exploring complete human majesty in, in the way of our thinking here is is infecting all sorts of lifestyles. He's asking us to do. He's asking us to do what seems impossible, impossible, but not just impossible. Humiliating, degrading, and no man should lower himself as a powerful teacher. But really, we should do whatever we can to be reconciled, just because our brother has something against us. I'm not what Christ believes in. I'm not what Christ teaches. And and as we begin to look at this. Consider something. Think about the world we live in. Let's think of the world and society we live in. It is uh, one of the most important things that we can teach these days is really consider self-confidence. Self-confidence, self-reliance. I grew up in a time, and when this was teaching was pretty prevalent, you can be whatever you want to be. You know, whatever you want to be. Fall comes around, I'm going to be the next Joe Montana or Ricky Bobby. Obviously, I'm not Joe Montana, nor am I Earl Campbell. Basketball season rolls around. I'm going to be the next Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. If you have not noticed, I'm not 6'10". I just have incredible cuts with a basketball. Football season rolls around. Nolan Ryan right here. Those of you that play softball with me know that. I don't play a hundred mile an hour fastball. Wyatt can attest to this because 
and be repaired. Um, you know, when we think about that, we, we teach this, that, uh, you know, we can achieve anything we want to do. And I'll tell you what, as a 13, 14-year-old boy, I don't know what I want to do. Am I on now? Did it go dead? Can you, are we good? See? Y'all going to be glad when your pastor gets back and knows what he's doing. Do I need to back up and start over? Are we good? <laughs> uh, but as a, like a 14-year-old boy, I realized real fast, I can't be anything I wanted to be. No matter how much confidence I had in my abilities, there was not this God-given talent to be these things that I desired. And... <clears throat> And it's kind of where, if you think about where we see ourselves in our society today, you can be anything you want to be if you work hard enough. But when we look from a biblical perspective, that's not true. Having confidence in self is not true. It is a false teaching. And I think what, from a worldly perspective and just from my own experience, there is value in learning and striving hard and becoming confident in things that we learn. But what scares me the most is that same logic, same teaching is, gets, is applied within the church today. That, 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 that there's worth in self. There's value in self. And when we look at these Beatitudes, the teachings of Christ today, Christ is going to completely destroy that that thought, that teaching. <clears throat> and let's be honest. If you know what the Beatitudes are, if you understand them, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the, those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek. If you were to list those on your job resume and send it in, do you honestly think that company is going to call you back? No, probably not. And, and and I found this interesting. A few years ago, I found myself on a pastor search committee. So biblically, we're supposed to be looking for someone that, that, is, that is a man of God, that is a servant of God. And as a committee, we got together and listed what was important priorities that we were looking for. Do you know what they did not line up with? These lists that we're going to look at today. Um, there were things like... Uh, we want somebody that's an extrovert. It's going to just be out and just be happy and around people. Uh, somebody that's uh, good in the community. Somebody that is uh, confident. And none of these things scripturally speak to what we should look for, what we should desire. And I was quite conflicted. I, I'm not going to lie. Um, but but it, it is. And through that, and um, Angela and I were talking about this yesterday. Uh, <clears throat> And she's going to be very upset with me that I forget the reference here. But there was this, there's this book that's uh, perpetuated within the uh, church quite a bit um, called Girl, Wash Your Face. If you go through, and I forget the author's name, then that's what she's going to be upset with me about. But if you go through there, a lot of what she reads in that book is about self-worth, about your, your value. And, and scripturally... The world can do what they want. It's not true. It's a heresy. And we're going to see that today. Uh, we see it all the time. 
Uh, there's a big church right down the street. Right down the highway here. They'll teach you best of life now. How to be the better you. It's not biblical. And in fact, it's a lie straight from Satan himself. If we, if we connect those dots, you think about it. What was the original temptation to, be in, to Adam and Eve? It's to be like God. Elevating your value of yourself. Now I ask as we approach this today, this text today, let's do this with humility and understanding who it is that's teaching it and the importance of what he's teaching. So with that said, let's, let's kind of, let's back up, let's look at the setting here. So if we back up to verse, uh, chapter 4, <clears throat> if you go back to chapter 4, and specifically verse 25, it says there were great crowds followed him from Galilee and the, De- the De- Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So we see that there were these great crowds around him, these great crowds that were following him. Uh, they were from Galilee. Um, Decapolis was a, was a confederation of 10 cities that were south of Galilee. Uh, there's Jerusalem, which would be like the big city. So let's say that, you know, if we were having something going on here, we got people from Houston, we got people from, I'm going to show my age, the Golden Triangle coming up, um, and we got people from over the Jordan. There's people from Louisiana coming over to Sabine. Just people from everywhere coming, coming, and this was a crowd that surrounded him. <clears throat> so when we, when we think about that, in that time, and that, that was a Roman province, so you had different cultures, different backgrounds, different tribes, just people from all over mixed in with this. Then as we get into chapter 5, it says he went up, and as we said last week, it's very important in the Gospel of Matthew to, to recognize this is kingdom proclamation, so he goes up as, as a king ascending a throne. He goes up, but not only does he go up, he sits down. And that's also culturally important because sitting down in that time, a rabbi that's going to teach would take a seat. He would be seated. So not only do we have the picture of him going up the throne, kingdom proclamation, but now he's sitting as a teacher. So in this, he's ele- he, he, there here he is. T- the, t- he's the teacher. Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the one hoped, hoped in by the Old Testament. You may always ask the question, how were the people of the Old Testament saved? Just like you and I are saved, hope and faith in Christ. This was a long-awaited Messiah they'd been waiting for, the promised king, this great teacher, the greatest teacher, the greatest preacher of all time, is about to deliver the greatest sermon ever preached. So here we go. The greatest sermon ever preached. They're waiting. They're just waiting. And the crowds are gathering around. They're not sure if this is who he is, but they know that it's been said this is who he is, that he's the Messiah. So these are words they've been waiting for this. For centuries they've been waiting. And if we were to to put ourselves in that situation, say there was a great leader in our country that's going to deliver us from the state we're in right now. What were the first words you would think would come out of his mouth? that he's going to bring the the United States back to its prominent glory, what do you think the first words would be? What do you think, how do you think he would describe a citizen of this country that's going to bring this country back to its glory? Do you think it would be blessed are the poor in spirit? Is that the first thing you would want your president to say in taking office? 
you might say, what? What does this even mean? What does it mean to be a citizen and be poor in spirit? We're Americans. We're proud. You go to any country in this world, and you can pick an American out of any group, anywhere, anytime. Guilty as charged. We can't hide. We carry ourselves with a pride that is unmistakable. And we're usually about a foot taller than everybody else, too. That, that kind of goes into it. But there is. As citizens of the United States, we do carry ourselves differently. <clears throat> and we stick out. But our country, it's about freedoms. The citizenship in the kingdom of God is about submission. But in reality, in this country, we don't structure our lives around what is being taught in the sermon. And we're going to see this. These first four Beatitudes that we're going to look at today, it's about us coming into relationship with God. Last four, not going to get into, but just to kind of give you a brief overview, is our relationship to the world around us in light of the first four. So let's begin. In, uh, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, before we get really too deep into this uh, poor in spirit, we got to understand what, it, what the word blessed means. And if I were to poll you, poll the whole audience here in the church and ask, define the word blessed. We'd probably get, I'm going to say, at least 50 different definitions. That becomes dangerous. We need to know what does Christ mean as he, when he says blessed. So as we approach this text today, let's try to remove any presuppositions, any, any, things we, any ideas or thoughts we had on the word blessed, because we're going to go back and we're going to look at it. We're going to look at this word, what it means, and, what it, and honestly, it has two different meanings here. And what it meant in the Greek, and then how we should, how we should understand this word as we read it in Scripture. So it's a Greek word, makarios, and its simple definition is happy or one to be congratulated. Happy, content. Somebody that you would want to congratulate for their happiness. So this is exciting. Think about it. Jesus is about to teach here. So if we were to break this down, Jesus says, blessed are. You might pause for a minute. Oh, here he goes. He's going to tell us what it's, what it's going to be for us to be happy, what people are going to envy us for the joy that we have. What's he going to say? Poor in spirit. Hmm. You know, I really thought this was going to be some good stuff coming from the, from the Messiah, or, or he was about to bring thunder down and condemn the Romans, and we're going to run them out. Hmm. Not what he says. The great Savior follows the statement, with happy are the poor in spirit. I don't know about you, but I've never associated poor with happiness. Um, Angela and I were married right out of high school. I joined the military. I, I can remember a point in, in our, our marriage. We had two boys. I was about to get out of the military. And I wouldn't have considered us poor because we didn't spend all of our money each payday. My paycheck every two weeks was $612 every two weeks, and we didn't spend it all. 
Now we lived off of hamburger meat and chicken legs, but you know, that's, but you know, we think about poor. When I, when I think about the times when, when it was a struggle, it was a struggle. I don't think of happiness and most of us don't either. We, we don't, we don't associate happy, poor and happy. It just doesn't, it does not compute here. And the words that Jesus spoke really just turned everything upside down in one statement of his first real sermon. He just flipped this idea of the kingdom upside down. In fact, Stephen Lawson, he did a series of sermons on the Beatitudes, a wonderful series that just, I mean, if, if I didn't think it was wrong to do, I probably would have just hit play today and let it play. But um, he refers to a series of sermons as the upside down kingdom. And that's really what Christ has done. He turns it upside down. He destroys what man had determined as the kingdom of God, and he set the record straight. But the word blessed has a dual meaning here. And the second meaning is favored by God, redeemed by God. For us, we would say saved. So those that are happy, content, redeemed, those that are in Christ are poor in spirit. So simply put for us today, this means a list of characteristics that are about to be laid out before us are of paramount importance because they show us the path to redemption, that show us the, the way to be in right standing with God. So poor in spirit, let's dig in just a little bit more. And I'm going to labor this poor in spirit part a, a little more than the, much more than the others. So let's dig into this a little more. Jesus is saying that in order to be happy, one must be poor. Now, when Christ speaks of poor, we got to forget this is not a physical poverty. Christ is saying, he's not saying, sell all your stuff and you will be saved. Not at all. If you remember the account of the rich young ruler, the rich young man, that's in three of the Gospels. He asked Christ, what do I need to do to be saved? He says, well, you, there's the law. You know it. Well, I've kept it. The young man lies right off, right off the bat. So Jesus really, knowing the inner man, goes to the heart of his issue. The one thing he could never depart with was his wealth. He tells him to sell all things. And the man went away sad because he couldn't depart with that. Now, one of the wrong teachings of that would be sell all your stuff and be poor. The Jesuit order of the uh, Catholic Church is they take a vow of poverty. Scripture never tells us that's what we're to do. So we're not talking about this physical poverty. We are talking about a spiritual poverty. And what Christ means, or it's a, what he means here in the spiritual poverty is no faith in self, a complete and total emptying of self and a reliance on God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says it like this, ultimately a man's attitude toward himself. We must be poor in ourself, thinking of ourselves, thinking less of ourselves. Poor in spirit is a low view of self, a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-reliance. How does that fit with what the world teaches? This is a clear division between what the world teaches. And sadly enough, clear division on what many of the popular churches teach today. I I once uh, read a quote from a a pastor that said, uh, if you want to empty the pews of your church, preach on sin. You want to call the, say, call the flock, call the herd, preach on sin and the way to redemption. It's true. 
the, uh, the gospel is divisive. And Christ warns us of this. So there's a clear division from what the world teaches and what is being taught in many of our churches. And Stephen Lawson describes it in this way. Describes this poor in spirit. This is his description of poor in spirit. In the time that Jesus spoke these words, it was commonplace to have a beggar that were often crippled and relied on people to help them to a good spot to beg for alms. They could not do it for themselves. It would have taken all their strength to just hold out their hand and hope that someone would put something in their hand so they might receive it. The word poor, this is what the disciples would have connected with it. Of the beggars, just begging. They can't do anything for themselves, just putting out their hand and hoping that something will get put there. It's the same way we come to Christ. Knowing that we do not have a righteousness of our own and just praying and hoping that he, his righteousness, that he will reach out. This is poor in spirit. No reliance on self. Total, complete reliance on God that he will provide. <clears throat> this is how our spirit, heart, soul should approach the throne of God as we come before God. This is how we should approach it. You may ask, is this right? Would God really desire people whose spirit is broken, completely broken? It doesn't take long to go back and start looking at popular characters in the Bible. Moses, Exodus 3.11, when God, God's sending him to back to Egypt to bring his people out. Moses' response to him is, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He didn't believe he could do it. He knew he couldn't do it. He must rely on God. Gideon. That's one of my favorite ones, Gideon. So Gideon in Judges 6, he's hiding from the Midianites who are attacking Israel. But he's working, though. He's threshing wheat, but he's hiding. An angel of the Lord appears. An angel of the Lord says, Gideon, oh mighty man of valor. He's kind of like, who, me? The man that's hiding, the man that doesn't want to have anything to do with what's going on. And in fact, he tells the angel of the Lord, I am from the smallest tribe and I am the weakest of my tribe. But the angel of the Lord refers to him as mighty man of valor. And we don't have enough time to go into the account of Gideon. It's an amazing story. He kind of goes off the rails at the end. But up to, the, uh, up, up to a certain point, he's complete reliance on God. It's an amazing story. Someone that had no confidence in self. Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. One of my favorite passages. When Isaiah sees the vision of the Lord filling the temple. And he just sees the glory of the Lord. And he says, woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips. And I come from a, a tribe of unclean people. Meaning that I am a sinner. I come from a people that are sinners. I've seen you and there's nothing about me that's good. Paul, in Philippians 3, where he talks about if anyone should boast, I should be one to boast. He lists all these reasons that he should have to boast. He says, I counted all as loss to know him. 
to know him. I don't care what I've done. He, he is what I desire. And the greatest example we could go to is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's praying. He knows what's coming. His flesh, his flesh knows this is going to be difficult. What does he say? Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, your will. Submitted to the Father. So the answer to that question is yes. God desires people with a broken spirit who think lowly of themselves and rely completely on him. When we think of the good news, the gospel, this good news, there's one thing to always remember. The gospel condemns before it releases. There is this condemnation, this realization of who we are before God, before the gospel releases us. And as we grow in sanctification, we, will con- we should continue in growing in our poor in spirit. We should continue looking at Christ. And, and Paul is an example of this. And, and, and this takes a little bit of, just a little bit of study, but it takes a little understanding of when Paul wrote letters. When it was early letters to the first, the, the first letter to the Corinthians. Apostles. He considered himself lower than all the apostles. Ephesians, about five years later, roughly five years, quite a bit of debate there. He says, I am least of the saints. So he is least of all the believers. He, he looks at himself lower than all believers at this point. This is a man who's growing. He's growing in his knowledge of God. His reliance on self is diminishing every day. One of his last letters, 1 Timothy. And many of you probably know what I'm about to reference here. He refers to himself as chief among all sinners. He views himself lower than any person on the earth. Paul walked a life focused on Christ and relying on Christ. And he realized just how vile he was in light of Christ and no longer relied on himself but looked to Christ and his righteousness. Righteousness. Now, I think I've belabored this, labored on this one a little bit too long, but I think it's important to realize this is the first step in coming before God, is that we must empty ourselves of everything before Him. So now we're going to move at breakneck speed to get through these last few, because I don't want to talk too terribly long today. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Happy, content, and content are those who mourn. This mourning over sin, that this, this Greek word here would be like a lament, a crying out. Um, very similar to Isaiah's response that, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, live among a, a people that are unclean. This speaks to a godly sorrow that produces repentance, leading to salvation without regret. 2 Corinthians 7.10 For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. True repentance will not occur apart from such a genuine sorrow over sin. Do we lament over our sins? Does it just burden us that we have sinned against a holy and righteous God? 
And this will come once we have died to self. And God reveals himself to us, and we see God for who he truly is. And we are broken by the fact that we have sinned against this holy and righteous God. When we see him as he's revealed himself rightly, it should be painful that we sin against him. And dying to self, we turn to him. Because he's the only way to redemption. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek is the opposite of self-control. Often mistaken for weak, it is a humble and gentle attitude of submission. This is not weakness, but supreme self-control. Think of Christ in the garden as he's praying. He was fully God, correct? I mean, he could have done something on the cross, in the crucifixion. Did he have the power to stop that? Yeah, sure he did. Even even when we look at the temptation where uh, Satan is tempting in the wilderness, he tells him, you know, uh, Satan tells him, you could call on angels. And he could, he could have, but he didn't. It wouldn't because he was weak. He was omnipotent, all-powerful, but he was meek submitted to the will of God. For us, this comes, that this will come in real, the realization that nothing in this world is ever really ours. God is a ruler, and we are just stewards of what he has given us. And we, um, and with, we with humility and with joy, submit to his will. We own nothing. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. It's hungering and thirsting. This speaks of those who seek God's righteousness more than their own. <clears throat> Romans ten three. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That verse is not true for those that hunger and thirst for God's righteousness. They know that the righteousness of God is the only one that will satisfy. And we think of the, the woman at the well where Christ says, you drink of this water, you will thirst again. You drink of the living water, you will never thirst. Our desire for God should be like that. We should have this longing, this thirst, this desire for God. Just as we get hungry and We should always be hungry for God and hungry for more of him. As we look at these Beatitudes, the first four are how citizens of the kingdom of God approach his throne. This is the way to salvation. Let's not forget this. And the rest are statements and blessed statements on how we are to respond to the world. Happy are we when we are merciful to the world. Happy are we when we are the peacemakers. Happy are we when we are reviled and persecuted. Happy are we. The only person that that could be true for is one who has died to self, repented, and turned to Jesus as Lord, submitted to his will, and desires more of him. Can that be said 
about us. When we look at these Beatitudes, they're the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5. That's where we see them. Last week, we may have been left wondering, can I live up to what Christ is teaching here? The truth is, apart from God, no. None of us can. None of us can live up to that. As believers, as followers of Christ, we realize that nothing is ours. The kingdom of God is now present And our lives should reflect that truth. God is gracious. He bestows on us the great honor and privilege of being stewards of his creation. Let's think about families. Our families, God has gifted us with families. Um, Parents, if you're in a situation that Angela and I are in and your children are uh, out of the home, you realize God just lets you care for them for a short time. They're his. They are his. I heard the same words echoed from Brenda the other day. Brandon is his. And his will be done to his glory. Powerful words coming from a grieving, tired mother. It doesn't just end with families. Think about our possessions, our careers. All of it is his. Church, this church building, the people in this church is his. This is his bride. We own none of this. We've just been favored to care for his bride for a short time. We got to empty ourselves of pride or we can easily want to take ownership. You want to divide a church? Change the carpet color. That's simple, because we take ownership. We, 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 we feel like it's ours. It's not. None of it's his. None of it's his, and we must remember this. It is a dying of self. It's submitting to him as Lord. This is the only way that we can live this Christian life, polar opposite to what the world teaches. I encourage you to search these scriptures for yourself and lie to this truth. Read this sermon, what Christ is teaching in light of what these Beatitudes are saying. It will completely open it up because there are things said that you're like, there's no way anybody could live up to that. You're exactly right. No one can. The only one that can is the one that has turned to Christ, repented, emptied themselves of all their pride, all of their self-worth, all of their, their self-confidence, knowing that he is the only one that can save us. He is the only one that can make us right. And if you don't understand that, if you don't have that peace, if you don't have that knowledge, turn to him. Look to him. Look to Christ. Look to that cross. Because he is the only way. He is the only way that we find redemption, that we find peace, that we find the abilities to live as he has commanded. So last week, we looked at a very tough teaching. This week, we looked at how. We go about living up to this. Next week, we are going to look at who this teacher is. Who is it that's saying these words? We are going to look at the supremacy and the majesty of our Lord. And I pray that through that, it will really give us a different perspective 
of this Sermon on the Mount as we look at who Christ is. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, your, your word today, it is not easy. It is not easy when we approach it trying to accomplish these things on our own through ourself. Father, Lord, I pray that each of us would, we would, we, we would die to the flesh. That we would seek after you and your righteousness and your righteousness alone. And that we too would continually walk with you. And that you would reveal yourself to us and we would adjust our lives accordingly. Living and walking with you in obedience. Father, Lord, I I pray that um, in light of the truths in your word, that you would teach us, you would grow us. And that we would see you in all your glory and all your majesty. And you would give us a hunger and a desire to seek after you. If there are those here that do not understand, that do not know this peace, Father, I pray that they would, they would look to you, they would inquire of you, that they would ask, they would ask that you would reveal yourself to them. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for that you allow us to come together and open your word. And Father, Lord, I pray that you would lift each of our hearts to you. Ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I thank you so much.